Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome back to Pole Position. We are doing another two-parter. I promise you guys, I'm not going to do the same as I did with Josh Zimmerman, where we ended up doing a two-parter to three-parter to a four-parter. We're okay. We're doing a two-parter. We're back on the Napoleonic period. Again, I am not co-hosting this all on my own. Okay, I have the wonderful Sam Jolly with me because, do you know what? She's the best Napoleonic historian out there and she's the only one that I want co-hosting with me on this podcast. Hi, Sam. Hello, darlings. Thank you for having me back. And just a little refresher, who is our guest today? Our guest today is David Gralik, who is a PhD student at Adam Mickiewicz University in Poznań, which is in northwest Poland. And we're doing military history and we're doing the Napoleonic period and we're doing Poland today. And we still have questions to ask him. So just a very quick recap. Oh, by the way, hi, David. Just to add that into there. Hello. Hello. It's good to be here again with you and Sam. I'm getting so overly excited here. But we we left off talking about the types of officers that were serving in the in the in the army in the Dutch in Warsaw. But you briefly so the next question you briefly already touched on this. You touched on it from the perspective of I give you money, therefore I'm going to give you a rank and I shall promote you to said rank and you will do military things with no experience and then loads of people will die which is probably not the best sort of approach to go forward so talk us a little bit more through about the policy of promoting officers and the big question is did the french actually have an influence on these promotions in the british army in the polish army in the polish army not the british army because sam sent me a message and i said (laughs) british so I blame Sam for sending but, me a but, message. But they, but they had an influence to British in some sense because they the French soldiers killed some British officers. So uh, I don't talk about killing British officers. This may not be the room for it. No, I'm joking. Go for it, David. Hit us with your question. I mean, hit us with your answer. <laughs> okay, so um, about the promotions, both to next ranks and functions, depended on several factors. Factors, in fact. Here is it is worth giving a more general note that during the Napoleonic Wars we can note several models for promoting officers. For example, the French army was guided by the principle of meritocratism, although they, um, you know, you are going, you are, you are, you have your rank because of your courage or skills in combat. Um, although there were, of course, exceptions for this rule especially during uh, the uh, empire period. The British army had uh, a commission system, right? Um, while in the Russia, Belfast patronage were largely decided. As for the Dutch of Warsaw, I haven't found any official documents according to which promotions were to be granted. So one can assume that they were largely terminated by senior officers. In the case of junior officers, because they presented officers to promotions, or military decision makers in the case of senior officers. At this point, the question is raised about about the ratio between merit and non-merit factors. Um, At the very beginning uh, of building the officer corps, both Dobrovsky and Poniatowski turned to people that they knew from their earlier years of service. 
1806, it had been 12 years since the dissolution uh, of the Polish army. So there was a major gap and the officers presented in the country were far too few in relation to the needs for the forming army. Um, therefore, it, uh, in this early period, officers with military experience were a scarce commodity and as it were, and they could be promoted quite quickly. For example, Cyprian Godebski, otherwise uh, a very interesting figure as he was not only an officer, but also a talented poet, was promoted from captain to colonel within a dozen weeks because of the needs uh, of the army. Um, this shortage of officers meant that uh, there was a gap when it came to junior officers, and that's where the group of rookies mentioned in the, our previous episode comes in, uh, and who, by the way, were also able to be quickly promoted, uh, ranked to higher if they had enough talent of connections. It's quite characteristic, by the way, that they were, there was quite a high turnover among junior officers since quite um, they uh, left military service after the campaigns uh, were over, especially if they had sources of income other than, than they pay. So if they were aristocrats or something like that. Um, for example, Count Atanasi Raczynski entered the army in 1806, serving as a lieutenant resigned after the peace of Tilsit, returned to the army during the war against Austria in 1809, and resigned, after, uh, and resigned again after the end of that war. Quite in intricate, isn't it? Um, it's really complicated. I'm trying to sit here and I'm like... Uh, he was in, he was out, but, but he had many connections because, you know, he was Count Raczynski. So. Pays to be in, a count, import, though, right? Import, 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 it was an important family in, in, in Poland in that day. So, so uh, Raczynski, like other representatives of the aristocracy, had an easy path to promotion. Uh, for example, Alexander Fredro, a well-known Polish poet and writer, but also an officer of the Napoleonic Wars, recalled the circumstances of his entry into the army as follows. I quote, um, Prince Piotrowski received me kindly. We talked beautifully, although not for, not, uh, for long. Um, the next day I received a nomination for a second lieutenant, end of, end of quotation. It's worth mentioning that in addition to his background, the fact that his older brother Maximilian had already served in the army worked in Fredro's favor. And it was um, he who introduced his younger brother to Poyatowski. So uh, connections, right? Um, of course, it's not uh, that promotions were given only for connections and by nepotism. Um, to say, I say the least, uh, because many promotions were given of courage or skillful leadership. Um, it's an open question uh, whether um, membership in these four groups uh, I, I mentioned in the last episode um, played a role, and I hope to have an answer soon. Um, this will be um, all the easier as I intend to use the uh, some new computerized methods of the data analysis that my team and I have been successfully using in our grant working on digital sources and um, that we intend to use now from for traditional sources. Um, making quantitative analysis will be much easier and faster if we would try count everything, for example, in Excel, right? Uh, by the way, uh, Victor Adrian Cyprian, greetings for you if you are listening. Um, going back to mind threat, um, nepotism played its role in the army uh, of the Dutch, obviously. Um, an interesting combination of both merit and not merit factors is a career of Prince Sukowski, sorry, uh, who was given the rank of chief of regiment to begin with, which was more formal overtones and he got it basically because he paid for the regiment of which he became chief later he became involved in uh, the ongoing campaign against uh, Prussia and russia uh, where despite his lack of experience he proved uh, to be quite a courageous commander in fact 
Um, probably due to this, after the abolition of the position of the chief of regiment, he received the rank of colonel and officially commanded his regiment. Later, he fought in Spain, uh, again setting few examples uh, of uh, personal courage. Thanks to this, as well as his personal relations with Prince Poniatowski, by the way, with Sukowski's uh, wife also playing her part. Um, he was given the rank of general of brigade in 1810 at the age of only 25. And three years later, he was appointed general of division. So 20, so 28 years old and general of division, right? The highest rank and the Dutch of also army. Uh, after the, the death of Prince Piotrowski in the Battle of Leipzig, he was even for a short time commander in chief of the entire Dutch of also army which happened as a result of the intrigue made by a group of generals. Uh, so this example shows that these two factors were able to intermingle. At this point, let me make a curiosity related to the bureaucratic aspects of promotions, because formally all promotions were given by Friedrich August as uh, the Duke of Warsaw. So on officers' patents, uh, which were beautifully, by the way, perhaps I'll add one under the recording of our conversation on Twitter. Uh, we can read Friedrich August by God's grace, King of Saxony, Duke of Warsaw, etc. Having in our Duke of Warsaw army a rank to be given, we selected and appointed. Here falls the name in the regiment, here the regiment number, etc. etc. Uh, and uh, at the end, we have Piotrowski's. Spetowski's signature as a minister of war and the date of issue and, and interestingly uh, enough it uh, also was the annotation of the date of assumption of the rank which was obviously earlier than the date of issue of the patent since the circulation of documents between Warsaw and Dresden was lengthy and could take many months. In the consequence, I even found a series of free documents, patents of three consecutive officer ranks of one man, where the date of assumption of the next rank was able to be earlier that than the date of issuance of the patent for the previous rank. It's truly amazing, what? right? How so does for, that so, happen? So, for, for example, you have you have an annotation that you are a lieutenant, for example, and you are promoted to colonel. You um, at some point you are in fact a captain, but you didn't receive your patent for lieutenant. Bu okay, bureaucracy. that makes Bu sense. That makes sense. It's a bureaucracy, right? But hold on, wait, wait, wait. Not any bureaucracy. Polish bureaucracy. Polish and military, military Polish bureaucracy. Nice combo, by the way. <laughs> Not only in the Napoleonic Wars period. As for the influence of the French, it was visible, although I think it wasn't crucial when it came to the lower ranks. Nevertheless, from sources, we know of cases of direct promotions uh, given by Napoleon on the battlefield. This was experienced, for example, by one of the diarists, Henrik Dembiski who was promoted to captain after the Battle of Smolensk in 1812. Um, although in theory, the promotion given by Napoleon took place without any formal regulations, it was of course carried out, especially during the campaign when Napoleon was the direct superior for, for Poniatowski as the commander of the Grand Army. Um, I think that the most important decision at the emperor's discretion was to fill the position of commander-in-chief of the Dutch of Warsaw army. Interestingly enough, it was initially Marshal Louis Nicolas Davout, since his third corps was still in the Dutch of Warsaw after the Peace of Tilsit. It seems that the marshal didn't inter interfere in the process of promoting officers, leaving this to Poniatowski. Only when Davout left, before the war of 1809, Poniatowski was appointed commander-in-chief. Interestingly, according to Davout's aide-de-camp, Josef Szymanowski, who was Paul, obviously, uh, it was Davout who was given the freedom by Napoleon to appoint the commander-in-chief of the Duchy army, albeit with uh, a slight hint of Poniatowski. 
and he later decided just to choose Prince user. Of other cases, I also found a document of promotion given by General Jonra, who was a governor of Gdańsk uh, during the siege of that city in 1813. The situation in this regard was obvious in that uh, these troops um, were cut off and there was no possibility of sending the relevant documents from general staff of the Duchy of Oslo army. Um, so an issue I have yet to dwell on is the potential influence of the French of the manning of promotions in the in the units where that were in the French pay, like regiments which were in Spain. Um, here I'm mainly referring to uh, these regiments and it's still ongoing research. So we will see the results in the next uh, few months. Wow. So um, were there any foreign officers serving in the army of the Duchy of Warsaw? Yes, they were officers of foreign origin serving in the Duchy of Warsaw army of that period. And we can divide them into two main groups, in fact. The first was uh, officers who had ancestors from outside Poland. Um, these, were, these were mainly descendants of families that settled in Poland during the period of the Polish Lithuania Commonwealth. Um, interestingly, these families often underwent very rapid polonization. That is, they began to identify with the Polish nation and Polish culture as in the second generation after settling in Poland. It's quite interesting and it's, I think, very original in European scale. Let's um, complicate Polish identity even more. Yeah. I think uh, if you are talking about people like it, like this, an interesting example here is the family of General Stanislaw Fischer, chief of the general staff of the, of the Duchy of Oslo army. His father, Karl Ludwig Fischer, who came from the area of present-day Germany, served in the Russian army and then in the Polish army, reaching the rank of major general. He was even an aide-de-camp to the last king of Poland, Stanislav August. This doesn't mean that everyone broke with their foreign origin. For example, General Josef Rautenstrauch, whose family came to Poland in the first half of the 18th century, used to sign his name von Rautenstrauch in correspondence conducted in German during the campaign of 1813. Uh, but planning for, for this threat, uh, it's worth noting that among Polish overseas, we can find um, descendants of families coming from different, different parts of Europe, such as Netherlands or Scotland or Germany, um, which was related to the fact that over the centuries, many foreigners settled in the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. The second group of officers of foreign origin were officers who had ties with Poland before serving in the Polish army. And here we are talking primarily about representatives of two nationalities, namely French and Germans. Um, the latter uh, are less well known, so let me start with them. They were primarily officers of the engineer corps. Um, there were about a dozen of them, with the highest rank being Lieutenant Colonel Wilhelm Minter, born in Szczecin, now in Poland, but then it was Prussia. He was known as a good architect and builder. Uh, moving on to the French, they, their presence can be divided into two stages. Um, the first was before the, the establishment of the Duchy of Warsaw. These were officers who served in the Legion of the North, which was formed in September 1806 and consisted of Poles, deserters and prisoners of war from the Prussian army. Um, the problem with this formation was the lack of the Polish officers, as the Legion was called up before the Grand Armée entered Poland, so Frenchmen served them um, with Poles. As, uh, as officers. Um, after the Peace of Tilsit, the regions was incorporated into the army of the Dutch and the French were given a choice. They could remain in the Dutchy or return to France and almost all of them chose uh, to return. And one of them, uh, Major Coquignot, said that despite being presented with extensive opportunities for promotion, he didn't want to remain in the Duchy because he wanted to return to his homeland. 
and also Lieutenant Charles de Gaulle believed that remaining in the duchy was unpromising and he as a Frenchman should serve um, in the French army. Um, de Gaulle wasn't convinced even by the lavish bribe offered by uh, Legion commander Prince Rajivu. He described this situation like this, I quote, um, Prince Rajivu un unsuc un unsuccessfully applied for the, the detention of some of us. The major and paymaster assisted him in this. The major tried to convince us that our advancement and our interests spoke in favor of taking an oath to the prince, king of Saxony. Prince Rajivi wanted to speak in private with each of us, which was nice and honorable for us. The chatter was dignified and friendly, but what appalled for me and seemed a strange lack of tact, even an insult, was um, the large plate on the table filled with gold coins. Obviously, our corner was well careful not to offer it to any of us, by, but why did the gold find its way there so awkwardly? Ah, Mr. Rajivu, this was no behavior in French style. He was, try, he was trying to be nice to me, and I would certainly have, have been more gracious to him if I hadn't been for that unfortunate platter. So in some, there are some situations when uh, money doesn't matter. Um, anyway, after the piece of Tilsit, a dozen French officers uh, found their way into the Polish army uh, on, uh, because of the Napoleon's orders. They were primarily artillerymen and engineers, since the Dutch's army lacked experienced officers of this kind of troops. Thus, in brief, uh, Jean-Baptiste Malet de Grandville reached the rank of colonel and became commander of sappers. Uh, Jean Pelletier was promoted to general and became commander of artillery. And Pierre Montomp was colonel of artillery, overseeing at least um, gunpowder factories, for example. Um, in addition to them, several other officers, Frenchmen serving in the Dutch's army can be mentioned, including engineer Alexandre Alphonse, or an Hippolyte Blechamp at the camp to Prince Poyatowski, um, who fought with him at the Battle of Leipzig. Uh, initially, a large part of the French approached service in the duchy with aloofness as something temporary. Pelletier was even tried to keep him on the list of the French colonels after he was already been promoted to general in the duchy. Over time, this attitude began to change. The same Pelletier, after taking, after being taken prisoner, wrote letters to, of protest uh, about the conscription of Polish prisoners of war into the Russian army, um, which made his conditions of the captivity worse, in fact. Um, Montomp and Malet, on the other hand, remained in Poland after the fall of Napoleon and served in the Polish army after, after 1815, also fighting in the November uprising. Uh, Malet even polonized his name by spelling it Malecki to make it sound more Polish. But, uh, and both are buried in Poland, by the way. Uh, Motom's uh, remains were found even a few years ago as he was buried in a church which was demolished in the 1930s. And he was reburied with military honors uh, a few years ago. I like the idea of polonizing your surname because it's not happened once or twice in history. It's more common than we think. Yeah, and we are speaking about French, so... Makes it more interesting. Right, listen, talk to us, because the next bit, I, I want you to tell me it's as Polish as possible without mm -hmm. telling me there's no carby cop in a French because, you know, Poles have got to be independent of themselves, but you're going to tell me it's the complete opposite. I know this. So what did the art of war represented by the officers of the Dutch of Warsaw look like? Was <laughs> it a carbon copy of French solutions? But there um, have to be Polish elements. Come on, give me some hope. Give me something to dream about. Yeah, I'll give, I'll give you hope because uh, it's not a simple question because um, uh, I think uh, this uh, topic should be considered in uh, on two levels, tactical and strategic. Of course, we know that uh, organization of the Dutch of Warsaw army was modeled on the French army, but uh, this doesn't mean 
that it fought entirely on the French model. At the tactical level, indeed, if we look at uh, the regulations used in infantry and artillery by both, we can see that French solutions were implemented there, but in cavalry, this was no longer the case. This was due to the long traditions of the Polish cavalry, uh, with Hussars, etc., uh, and the fact that it was different from the French cavalry, if only in the fact that in France, apart from Dutch, there were no soldiers who used the lance, for example, because there was Polish uh, units in the French army, but uh, we are talking about uh, purely French uh, soldiers. Um, if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Returning to the main threat, interesting information on the subject is provided by the instruction of General Alexander Rozniecki, the General Inspector of the Polish Cavalry, who recommended the use of both Polish regulations from before the partitions of Poland and French regulations. Um, interestingly, Rozniecki itself was unable to com complete his own cavalry regulations during his seven years in office. Uh, so there were works created by senior officers intended for their subordinates. Such works were written, for example, by generals Jan Nepomuczny-Minski and Dominik Dziewanowski. If you look at these works, we can see it's them a mix of Polish and 18th century Western European military thought, situated in the geographical realities of Central Europe with the addiction of Napoleonic organizational structure. So big mix. At the strategic level, the situation looks even more interesting, I think, for when we look at the independent actions carried out by Polish generals, we can see that they were differ from what we know as the Napoleonic out of war. Let's take, for example, uh, the war against Austria in 1809. The beginning, we can say, was in Napoleonic style. Prince Józef Poniatowski gave the Oceans, the Battle of Russian, but after it, the situation was different because the battle itself was inconclusive and the heavy losses suffered by the Poles made it impossible to continue fighting. Therefore, instead of aim, aiming for a decisive battle, as the logic of Napoleonic out of war would dictate, the Poles decided to not to defend Warsaw and to move operations to the eastern bank of the Vistula, to Galicia. So the Poland land seized by Austria during the partitions. Now it's Eastern Poland and Western Ukraine. Um, this was an action more in style of 18th century um, by conducting maneuver warfare. Um, anyway, it's worth noting that apart from the Battle of Russia, no other battle of comparable scale took place, which is why this conflict is sometimes referred uh, to as the war without battles, which is quite interesting because we you know the Napoleonic was period as the period with many battles, right? And here is worth uh, attempting to make a more general observation that 
the two main Polish commanders of the period who had the opportunity to conduct major operations of their own, namely Pantowski and Dombrowski, were raised in pre-French revolution models of warfare, Piotrowski in Austria and Dombrowski in Saxony, while um, both of them were adoptedly familiar with the principles of the French army and Napoleon's way of war, they didn't fully adopt uh, this way. The War of 1809 was one example, but more can be found. Uh, for example, let's look, uh, let's look at the Battle of Borodino, the largest battle of the Russian campaign of 1812. Um, the Polish corps uh, commanded by Poniatowski was on the right wing of the Grot Army and fought in the region of the Utica forest. If you look at Poniatowski's way of commanding in this battle, he didn't choose to operate his entire forces at once, but through individual units into battle, which, uh, which however, had uh, poor effects. Um, of course, some explanation of this was the difficult terrain in which the Polish soldiers operated, although there is no doubt that this wasn't an effective way of fighting. Besides Klemens Kowaczkowski, a Polish officer of the period wrote in his memoirs that, that Poniatowski commanded in this battle in an Austrian style, and that's why his successes were limited. Um, we see a similar pattern in another little known battle of the Russian campaign, which took place at Chirikovo in late September 1812, in which Poniatowski also commanded. Um, here too, the Polish commander flew his forces into battle in parts, with he difference with the difference that the effect was decidedly better, especially since in the second phase of the battle, the Poles defended themselves against the attack of numerically superior um, Russian forces. On the other hand, during the German campaign of 1813, the predisposition of Polish generals to carry out operations on a smaller scale is brilliantly demonstrated by the successful command in this campaign by both Poniatowski and Dombrowski. In general, my observation is that Polish commanders performed better, as it were, in more, how to say it, um, intimidate uh, conditions in this so-called small war, and we can uh, see lack of experience in commanding large masses of troops. Um, this caused great problems during the Russian campaign, resulting in both lost battles, such as the Cavalry Battle of Mir, or aforementioned in this uh, podcast, uh, um, high march losses before reaching Smolensk, right? Um, the lack of qualified staff officers also played its role. For the Dutch army, the functioning of the staff, similar to the French one, was something completely new and the Poles had to learn how to do stuff work well. It can be said that the Dutch army was fortunate that they had uh, that, that the head of its staff um, for most of, the, of its, its existence was General Fischer. I think that's no overstatement to call him a Polish Berthier, uh, which the scope of the Poles duties being broader because in addiction, uh, to being the chief of, of staff, Fischer was also inspector, general inspector of infantry. On top of that, in view of the small number of qualified staffers, uh, he had to take care of many things on his own. Thus, he was a very busy man, and uh, that's why uh, his wife, uh, for example, which which write her memoirs, wrote that uh, he, she was said that. Uh, uh, he, he, she couldn't uh, spend many times with her husband. Well, he was a bit busy, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a very busy man. Oh dear. Okay, talk to us a little bit about what the daily life of these officers was like. Um, it's largely dependent on the general situation, whether there was a war going or peace was uh, prevailing, as well as where the officer himself was stationed. As for peacetime, I think that the main determinant was where the officer had to uh, his uh, place of service. In the best situation where those who were located in large cities like Warsaw or Poznan, officers there had access to cultural life, theaters or balls, which they were often invited or which they organized themselves in the case of generals. By the way, it's worth noting that officers 
understood high social position in the Dutch of Warsaw. It wasn't without reason that Frederick wrote that the military ruled in the Duchy of Warsaw with an iron scepter. Um, as an aside, this sometimes caused um, clashes um, with civilians, as abuses against civilians occurred. For example, after the liberation of Krakow in 1809, it was complained that the cost incurred uh, for the upkeep of police generals were considerable as they showed large needs, especially in alcohol. Um, of course, <clears throat> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to say that Poles are bad at drinking. The Russians are worse, but you know, we're still known for our good vodka. Of course, we are. And um, during this peacetime, official deities were also performed. In addition to the training of soldiers, this included depending on the rank and function, uh, matters related to the daily operation of the unit, keeping records, supplying recruits, etc. Of the less obvious, the scope may also have uh, included, for example, inspection of prisons, because there was no specialized prison service. Uh, officers serving in the provinces were in the more difficult situation. The presence of the army in smaller towns and villages was an event for their residents, a brief of big word. Um, nevertheless, the opportunities were much more modest. Efforts were made to maintain relations with uh, the most important local families, and they were also participated in handings, for example. In general, gambling was uh, also quite common, for example, among some officers. There was a belief that an officer who is not willing to risk his property is not willing to risk his life on the battlefield. Quite strange way of thinking, but... I'm a little um, bit shocked here. It's such a simplistic thought that you, would, um, you wouldn't think that, you know, you'd have to risk your life for materialistic things, right? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's more than a thing that we, we, we many, many things we don't know uh, mo most many things about you know mentality in previous ages and this mentality was completely different that, than uh, today so this how, how it looked uh, like in, in the Napoleonic uh, period in the Duchy of Warsaw of the Cops um, and various aspects of daily life especially in peacetime were compounded by various problems and by financial problems of course uh, I said about it in the pre previous episodes, uh, but um, here I like to present a more general view because the Dutch of Warsaw was created, in fact, from nothing, from zero, from lands largely destroyed by war against the Fourth Coalition, and the state had to maintain a larger army that it was able to, which is why some posts were taken by Napoleon and why three regiments of the Dutch of Warsaw fought in Spain and some stood garrisoned outside of. Dutchy, for example, in Gdańsk, which wasn't part of Dutchy, of course, um, but it was independent city, dependent on French. Uh, even so, it wasn't enough. Uh, the appeals of pay were considerable and reached many months. Um, for officers, the matter looked so bad that they were paid their pay at the end, since the lack of payment for the privates contributed to an increase of desertion. The, the overall scale of which is now unknown, uh, although it must have been something common in light of the documents known to me. Perhaps it was assumed that officers often coming from the nobility had other source of income and had higher morale. In practice, it wasn't always the case uh, and the Dutch's difficult economic situation caused by um, aforementioned wartime damages and the continent continental blockade made by Napoleon led to the fact that officers' families often couldn't provide them with financial support because they hadn't uh, had money on their own needs. Um, this was a difficulty for officers because unlikely soldiers, they had to provide their own uniforms, equipment and horses, which was quite unexpected expense uh, things. By the way, I love the Napoleonic Wars period also because during that period, uniforms were very beautiful, uh, but also expensive, especially for units like Hussars, 
Mm, but who's asked? I saw the request of one last officer to Piantowski not to transfer him to a Husa regiment, for which the main argument was the lack of funds for a uniform for him. Besides the commander of one of the Husa regiments, uh, Colonel Letter General Uminski wrote in one of his reports that, that he had to put out of his own pocket the money he gave his officers to equip themselves. Particular problems in this regard arose after the Russian campaign, when first issued the demand was greater than the supply, and as many officers simply had the uniforms destroyed uh, after the campaign. And second issue, the country's financial situation was simply critical at that moment. Turning uh, not now briefly to the functioning of officers during the war, it's worth distinguish, distinguishing here the situation of fighting on Polish soil and aside of it. In the first campaigns, um, like the war against Russia and Russia in 1806-7, or the war against Russia in 1809, um, the situation was quite simple, as one thought in quotation marks, one's territory or close to it. Um, therefore, one could either really on supplies from the country or procure locally using the support of the population, which was particularly evident in 1806-7 and 1809, less in 1812. Um, therefore, an officers didn't have to take too much care on his daily existence, especially since officers, even younger ones, often had servants who took care of basic things like cooking and laundry. Interestingly, these were civilians and the military authorities tried to strictly cut the rule that officers shouldn't use uh, privates as their servants. And if they wanted to do so, they had to have their superior's permission to do so, and as well as pay an appropriated rate to that soldier. Um, That's actually smart. And it's nice. You're not making use of the people at the bottom who should be out there fighting and actually learning and doing things rather than making them slave around and run around and clean your shoes and cook your dinner. Yeah, but you know, because in the Black in the Napoleonic Wars, there was no big logistical things, you know, and they need to carry many, many things on their own, right? That's why, for example, in the Napoleon period, we've got all this pimondier, right? And so the, in the most case, uh, the women who was like merchants and, do, and did some stuff for, for soldiers, you know, um, and officers had their servants. So uh, it looked like, like this. And, uh, and uh, going back uh, to describe the situation, um, it was much more difficult when Polish officers had to operate outside of Poland. Um, space, Spain stand, stands out in particular here when Poles fought uh, for almost four years. Um, leaving aside issues such as Spanish partisans, so-called guerrilla, um, the existence of which required special vigilance, also problems with supplies and the climate adversely affected daily existence. In the reports written to the Dutchy, there is the problem of losses among officers, which resulted not only from the battles waged, but also from the harsh climate and the generally harsh conditions of service. And the second special example is the Russian campaign, of course. Um, efforts were made to prepare well for it as far as possible, but reality proved more difficult than predestination. Um, of course, the self-imposed issue is the period of retreat, but at the beginning of the campaign, the situation wasn't much better, much better at uh, all due to the scorched earth tactics employed by the Russians and the vast expenses of Russia. Um, generally speaking, service during the war was hard because, of course, in addiction to the usual problems, there were strictly military matters like troop command, of course, which I think that even in worse conditions like Russian ones, Polish officers did their job well because 
we saved, for example, all of gas carried as the only corpse in the Grand Armée, and this requires saving discipline to, to the very end, which speaks well of the um, Polish officers. I think, um, in general, they fit well into an area where it was important to show personal courage, which was to set an example for soldiers. Even in the case of the less experienced officers, they tried to make up for differences in military knowledge with personal courage. For example, the Zdeny Kopowski wrote that during his first battle, he was very scared, but nevertheless managed to keep his um, soldiers in position. And during the Battle of Berzina, River, the commander of the Polish corps, changed, changed three times. As first Zajonczek, then Dombrowski, and finally Kniazewicz were wounded. Napoleon was even said to have commented on uh, this with the words that the Russians wishes the Polish commanders badly. You know, Polish, Polish and Russians not 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 not, not love with each other, also in the Napoleonic period. Uh, to this we can add the, the aspect of greater closeness to the private soldiers as efforts were made to maintain trends uh, lifted from the legions, where soldiers were tried to be treated as fellow citizens. Although this probably varied in the army of the duchy, but the aspirations were clear. This, by the way, is also what distinguished the army of the 19th century in general, not only during the Napoleonic Wars period, that in addition to the purely military aspects, that um, they were also a place for how to say it, creating a civic awareness. Um, at the time of the Napoleonic Wars, nation, nations in the modern sense were only just forming, and the private soldiers didn't always have to know what uh, he was fighting for and why. Officers were dif different in this uh, aspect, uh, as they were often far from more aware at uh, and at least uh, some of them tried to pass this on those below them. It was not without reason that uh, General Ruzhnitsky wrote in one of his instructions, I quote, um, the senior officers will give their subordinates public news, foreign news, national news, so that those scatters with garrisons in the provinces will not be left without news of the various accidents in which the present age is abundant and in which our homeland is beginning to regain its importance. I think that uh, this will be a good summary of this topic. So obviously the Duchy of Warsaw doesn't last, unfortunately it doesn't last for very long. Poles don't have as much hope as, uh, as they initially had when it first was established. But what actually happens to the officers serving in the army once the Duchy of Warsaw well, stops existing? I think that two main groups can be identified, those who chose to remain in the army after the creation of the Kingdom of Poland at the Congress of Vienna in 1815, and those who left the army. The reasons for leaving the service were varied. Some officers were tired after years of wars and wanted to continue life in civilian life, to have their own peace. Um, some didn't like the rules that that Grand Duke Konstantin Romanov, which, who became commander-in-chief of the Polish army, had established, who introduced strict discipline unknown in the army of the duchy. Um, that is why gradually many senior officers in particular resigned. As for the younger officers, they mostly chose to remain in the army, as the army provided a stable life, um, livelihood and political views had to recede into the background. Interestingly, many of those who left uh, later returned to the army during the November uprising 15 years later. This caused a lot of problems because of the, uh, of, of the you know, doctrinal problems and stuff, stuff like that. Uh, and also these officers which stayed in the army was also core of the officer corps of the Kingdom of Poland army. But I think it's a topic for another podcast. David, I think you and I could probably do this all day and all night talking about Polish history in this time period. But I know you're going to come back 
for sure, because we've got plans in the works to go much, much more in depth in this time period, because we don't really talk about it much. We don't talk about it in Western history. We don't talk about it. We don't, quite, don't talk about it in Poland much either, do we? We're more now obsessed with the Second World War, which is obviously my time period, but we're very... I'm not saying that it's a matter of culture, that Napoleonic was is not presented in the pop culture, for example. That's why, for example, I'm waiting for a film about Napoleon, right? With Ridley Scott is making now. So. Oh, really? Yeah. With Hawking Phoenix as Napoleon. Okay. Do you think the polls are going to be represented in it? I don't know. I hope so. Well, we know Western films and... Uh, hmm. Yeah, that's another thing. Never mind. Moving on very briefly. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for Sam for joining me. She's uh, she's popped out on Afraid just for the last leg of this. But it's been great. We're going to do some more. We're going to talk about... Uh, I think we're doing Poniatowski, aren't we, doing next time? We will see. We will see. But David will be back to talk to us about uh, more Napoleonic and Polish history. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed. Always. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.